Y'all waiting on me? Good morning. Good to have you here. Uh, glad y'all have decided to be a part of uh, Dalreda's Bible classes this morning. If you're visiting with us, it's always a joy and a pleasure to have you here. Um, glad that you've decided to be here at Dalreda uh, if you're part of the family here or, or if you're visiting. Before we begin class, uh, let's pray together and we'll get started. Lord our God, we come before you thanking you for this most wonderful, beautiful day that you have blessed us with, a day to be in your creation and to be in your presence. Thank you for the church that's represented here. We know that you take care of us and you hear us and uh, you answer our prayers according to your will. I pray that you will guide us as we study your word and as we think about how to take your word into all parts of the world. We thank you for guiding us and directing us in everything that we do. Father, we love you and we pray this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we are uh, continuing our study. Um, it's connected to where we were last week specifically topic-wise, but uh, what we're looking at overall is thinking about how to make the right kind of decisions, understanding the right kind of morals and putting those morals into actions and understanding the ethics behind the decisions that we make. A lot of what we do in life may not be directly correlated with right and wrong when it comes to morals. It may be what's the best choice or what would be the wrong decision to make in this moment. As we're storing up our idea, we're trying to think and reason within ourselves, what can we do to live God's word out better? Um, and that's been our challenge. Where we were last week, we were thinking about um, generally the world's morals and trying to put how people think into boxes and categories and understand where are people coming from in the world. If we're going to have dialogues with people, we're going to discuss with them, I want to know why they think the way that they do. I want to know why people are so passionate about their particular set of beliefs when it comes to right and wrong. Now, we're coming at it from a biblical standpoint. We want to think, what does Scripture have to say about this? We want to know, how can I take God's Word and live it out into a situation that I may not have a direct reference in the Scriptures for? How can I make the best decision and the right decision? Before we get back into our topic where we were last week, I want to pick up um, with a different angle, and I want to consider how Paul persuaded pagans. Um, I think it's very fascinating when you read the book of Acts. Paul would go into particular cities and he had a method. He would go into a city and he would find a Jewish synagogue first and foremost and he would try and dialogue with people there. Now it's about Acts chapter 13 where he kind of just washes his hands of the situation. He says, look, I am, I'm done with you Jews. I'm going to go strictly to uh, the Gentiles. Now, he does say that, and that is his, you know, his purpose, but he still keeps up with the Jews. He still talks to them. If he goes into a city and he finds a synagogue, he's going to go there first to talk to them. But what I find fascinating, though, is just his general idea of what he wants to do. In Romans chapter 1, he's writing to a church that he hasn't visited before. Now, we can kind of get an idea about the Roman church and what's happening there. We understand the persecution. We understand what's happening culturally. Uh, there's a lot that we know about Rome, but Paul's getting this secondhand. We read in Romans chapter 1, he said, I wish that I could visit you guys. He said, I'm looking forward to coming to you guys, and we know eventually he will get there. But he says, I'm looking forward to meeting you guys because I wish that I could impart some kind of spiritual gift to you to encourage you so that we can mutually be built up. That's how he starts off his book, with a lot of love. I haven't met you yet, but I want to. But then he steps back and he says, here's my purpose and here's my goal. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospels to you, to the, the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul said, "Look, I I care about everyone. 
the Jews, my own people that I relate to, I know where they're coming from. I know how they view Scripture. I know how they view God. Although they're split on certain areas, you know, you've got Paul's training where he comes from. He says, look, I'm concerned about everybody. The Jews and the Gentiles, the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish. He said, there's no one that's off the radar. I'm concerned about everyone because I have to preach the gospel. I think we can learn a lot from this because I find myself tempted to write certain people off of, I just don't think I could have a good dialogue with them. I just don't know if they'll listen to what I've got to say. Heaven forbid we put certain people in categories and we start calling them foolish or fools and we say they won't listen to what I have to say. That's not our purpose. That should not be our goal when it takes when we're trying to take the gospel in all the world. We're going to go to people that need to hear it, that want to hear it, and even those that don't want to hear it, that we go to them. And so this is Paul's purpose. And there's two specific places in the book of Acts that catch my attention. One of them is when Paul goes to Lystra. In Acts chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there, in Acts chapter 14, as far as I can tell, um, and see if you can find something else in the book of Acts, but I think when Paul gets to Lystra, this might be one of the only times that he comes across a completely pagan city. Now, within the text itself, I don't find a direct reference to Jews in that city. I don't see a synagogue. Now, some Jews are going to come from Iconium, um, and they're going to come over to Lystra, and they're going to persuade the crowd. But specifically, as Paul comes into the city, it seems like it is a completely pagan group of people. So much to the fact that when Paul gets there, they want to elevate him because they think that he is a god. He is one of the gods. Uh, and so you get that when he first comes into the city. And look in Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man uh, sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland uh, uh, with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Look at Paul's tactic when he deals with the people here. He's speaking directly to people that are not Jews, they're not monotheistic. They're not following the one God that the Jews and Christians follow. They have all these different gods. And where does he start? Has he begin to persuade them? He said, look, we are men just like you. We're on the same path. We're trying to discover these things about the true God. He said, we're of like nature. But let me get your attention. All these other gods that you're looking at, all these other ones that are around you, they pale in comparison to the one true God. Dig in a little bit more and look at his tactic. How does he get their attention? How does he persuade them? What is his apologetic? What is his method? Who gave you 
the good things around you. He didn't dive into this big discussion. He started with, what has God done? I think that's a good place if we want to start with anybody. This is where apologetics begin with people that are outside of Christianity, outside of one of the major world religions, a true pagan, is that you start with, let's talk about the basic things around us. Then we can start digging deeper. Where we came from in our previous discussions is all good things come from God because He is good and His goodness extends to us. Paul's getting there. It's just a little bit different way. Where we get to later on in the book of Acts, right after this, Paul goes into Lister. He starts establishing a church. The Jews come over. They, uh, they stone him. He gets back up. He goes into the city and he preaches again. He goes and establishes elders. This is a thriving city that receives Christianity. I love Lystra, and I think about their example to us. But the second one to think of is how Paul persuaded pagans when he was in Athens. Now, this is a longer discussion, and we won't read it for the, the sake of time, but you're familiar with this. When Paul goes to Athens, he goes straight into the synagogue, but then he also goes to where people want to think and where they want to reason. Not just what people may consider themselves just foolish, the lower level. He's going to go all the way up. He's going to talk to anyone that wants to receive him. And he has a similar tactic. It's just a little bit more sophisticated. He talks about the one unknown God to them, of how he's done good things and that we have our very being and existence through him. And he goes from there to Jesus. I love how Paul would speak to people. We need to take up the same arms. We need to take up the same tactic when we're dealing with anyone. The same motive that Paul has that I'm going to go speak to the Greeks, the barbarians, the Jews, the Gentiles, the foolish, the wise. I've got an obligation to go to all people everywhere. I don't write anyone off. That needs to be our motivation. That needs to be our, our statement. So I want to begin here as we get back into the little bit technical side of where we were last week of putting people into categories and understanding how they think. Um, if you'll remember where we were last week, uh, we are putting together this little kind of a flow chart. You've got on one side uh, people that are just, they make all of their decisions based off of emotion. There's nothing objective. There's nothing even subjective. We all just get to decide whatever we want, all whatever you want your emotions to do for you. So if you look at something that is right or wrong, it's because you feel it should be wrong. You feel that it should be right. It's like a flavor of ice cream. Whatever your flavor of ice cream is, that is good for you. You don't even have to give me reasons why you prefer chocolate over vanilla. It doesn't matter because that's what you want. That's what you desire. That's how some people view morals. That's how when they start making decisions, they're going to say it doesn't matter about anything in life other than how you feel. And you don't even have to justify those means. Well, there's a lot of problems there. But if you go back over to when we actually reason and we think through things, you have a subjective way. It's how I do feel about things, but I can take my views and I can put them Towards someone a little bit better. Um, maybe we make decisions about what is right and wrong based off of what's best for the whole. What's the best for society? Laws and regulations are put into place like that because what is the best thing for the biggest group of people? The cost-benefit analysis. Uh, a lot of people make their decisions about morals based solely on that. Or on the other side, what is best for me individually? I'm going to treat you with fairness and with kindness because one day I may need you to do something for me. This ethical egoism is I'm going to do what is ever best for me in the long run. So my morals, what's right and wrong, is dependent on what is going to help me succeed the most in life. 
what's going to bring me the most amount of pleasure versus the most amount of pain. A lot of people make their decisions off of that, and it seems very basic, but that's where people are coming from, uh, and that's what they're trying to do. So I wanted to put that in there and show us so that we can get over to the objective side. Um, let me jump up one slide real quick. Okay. So let's break this down. This is actually what I want to spend um, the most amount of our time on because this is what Jesus has to say. Where we're going to be next week, we're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend one particular class just looking at how Jesus challenges us, not just to follow the rules, but to be a better person as we do everything. How to actually look like Jesus. So that when we finally get to these bigger issues, we find the purpose is to look like Jesus. So we're going to think about virtue-based ethics. How to be a virtuous person. Now let me ask you, when you see the word virtue, what comes to your mind? What is a virtue? What's the purpose of a virtue? This is class. You can discuss with me. What is a virtue? A good quality. Okay. What would be some examples of that? Okay. So uh, a good quality like kindness. Okay. What else do you think of when you think of virtue? Okay, honesty. What else? Yeah, just how we treat human beings in general. When you think about making decisions just based off of virtue, what kind of society would we live in? If we say, all right, there are good virtues out there, we want to be honest, we want to be loyal, we want to treat people with kindness and fairness. If we said, all right, that's just our ethical system. That's how we're going to decide what's right and wrong is based off of my virtues. Do you think society would look good? Do you think that's a fair way to approach things of you be the best person you possibly can? You be as fair and just and loyal and kind as you possibly can so that when you treat people that way, it's an extension of who you are. If you want to be kind, you're going to treat people with kindness. And if somebody treats you un, um, you know, unfairly or whatever, then you oppose that. Now, I like virtues. I think there's a lot in Scripture that teaches us you need to be a virtuous person because there's a lot of decisions we're going to have to make in life that's going to say, all right, Jesus wants me to be trustworthy. So when I make certain decisions, I want to be as trustworthy as I possibly can in the workforce, my family, whatever that may be. If you're going to make decisions off of what is virtuous, I think there's a lot of uh, good things that come from this. Uh, I tried to make the text a little bit bigger. Brian, can you give me a thumbs up? Uh, uh, hey, there we go. You can actually see it from the back. Um, sorry, uh, last week I uh, changed the font a little bit. So, Here's the, the appeal if you're just going to make all of our decisions off of what produces the most amount of virtue or how can I be the most virtuous person. It offers a full case for how to handle ethical dilemmas. So when I'm presented with a challenge, I'm going to ask, what kind of person do I want to be in the midst of this? If there's something that comes up at home, am I compromising one of my virtues? Is my character going to be off? So it offers the fuller case for how to handle these dilemmas. A moral life that has virtue involves attitudes and motives as well as actions. It's not just the action itself of what is good or bad. 
It's how did you get there? So think about it this way. Why is murder wrong? Okay, well, I'm taking a, a life. I thought Chuck did a really good job uh, Wednesday night. For those that were here, if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, Chuck Webster spoke about um, thou shalt not kill from the Ten Commandments. Did a really good job of just thinking that all the way through. Um, how we treat people when it comes to murder, it's not just the action because we realize that when we get to Jesus. What does he tell us? You've heard that it was said to those of old, do not murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry. Don't slander. Why? What is the principle underlying those things? Well, that has to do a lot with virtue. Who you are could eventually lead to what you do, right? Um, so it provides motivation to do the right thing. It gives emphasis to communal context of ethics. We all want to work together to be the best that we can. But you do run into some problems, and this is why we're trying to make a big case. Who gets to define what is virtuous? For us as Christians, to say, okay, I'm going to go to the Scriptures. It's going to tell me what a true virtue is, right? But what about people that are in the world? How do they come to a conclusion that something that is good, you know, a good virtue is kindness or honesty? Kindness or honesty. How do people come to that kind of conclusion in life if they don't have the Bible? What do you think? Okay, you see benefit from it. What else? Okay, so it's just knowing how to, what it comes down to is how to love one another um, and to show that out. Okay, what else? Okay, so it's, there's something within us that we recognize what is good. You know, if we're going to try and define, you know, what is virtuous, there's going to be commonality between cultures about what is a proper virtue. Why is that? Well, I think that it's a moral code that God has written within us, and I can make a strong case for that. But how do people outside of Christianity, how do they justify that these virtues across the board, that there's commonality about what is good and kind? Right? I mean, there's something within us. I think it's very obvious that we recognize goodness because we are created good, possibly. <laughs> This is where we're opening up doors to people. When you start talking to them about, and I love it, one of these arguments where they come out and they'll say, you know, your God is just, he's just mean and unfair. Okay, well, where's your standard of mean and unfair come from? Why, why do you feel that way? Do you have some kind of standard that you live by that tells me what is unfair and what is mean? How can you use those terms to describe my God unless you have a standard? It opens up doors. But it is one of the problem, uh, problems is who defines virtue. Well, there is commonality. Um, but there's also a challenge. If I'm trying to be the best person I possibly can, and I'm presented with a, a dilemma, I may not always know what to do in the midst of it. So you say, all right. Uh, let's say you say, all right, I, I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to lie. Um, I, I want to protect my family. What do you do if somebody comes into your house? And we were talking about this. We were coming through some scenarios of like uh, in the Holocaust when they were trying to hide uh, the Jews within their home and they had soldiers that came in and they would ask, you know, do you, are you hiding anybody? Well, if you said yes, you could lose your life, your family and the Jews. Or, uh, but if you lie, 
you've compromised one of your virtues. What's the best thing to do? You see, because I want to be a virtuous person and I want to have all those things, I feel a dilemma. I want to be a virtuous person. I, I feel like I'm between a rock and a hard place. I don't want to compromise my beliefs. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to betray God. I don't want to have anybody cause harm. You know, you start feeling all these things. Well, why do we feel that way? It's not just like a motivism. It's like a, a flavor of ice cream. There's something within us. It pulls within us. We have that sinking feeling. We make decisions that way. I think there's a strong case that virtues offer a lot to the way that we operate within the world. So that's virtue-based. Um, and I, I think that has a lot of appeal of how we think. But then we also realize that there are just rules in this world. You may have people that say, all right, I know there's, let's describe it this way, there's certain oughts. I ought to do that. I ought to do this. I ought not do that. That's a rule-based. Where does that come from? It comes from two perspectives. Either God gave me that feeling that I ought to do this or I ought not, or we just evolved that way. So you have someone that believes in evolution. How did we come to be the beings that we are today? All right, so let's take something like forgiveness. Why would we have evolved to understand forgiveness? Right? If we would just do away with that, or compassion. If we didn't have that in our systems at all, because, you know, some people may consider that a weakness. You're, you're too compassionate. You're always trying to help people. What if I wasn't compassionate? Do you think that I could do a, a lot more? Would that just be more focused on me? How did we evolve to that? I, I think there's a lot of weaknesses um, saying that, you know, we just evolved over time to understand compassion and love. It, it just blows my mind because people that don't believe in God, they say, All right, you know, love is just this, these chemicals that you feel within you. Forgiveness, mercy, compassion, uh, all of these things, they're just chemical imbalances that maybe we'll just get out of our system the further we evolve. I, I, I really don't understand that. I'm trying, to, the, the more that I've studied this, I've tried to understand where people come from that we just evolved into the the ethical people we are today. It doesn't make sense to me. I, I do not understand it. Um, but it's either evolved or it comes from God. So, So to some extent, you do see that in the, the animal world around us, that they do take care of their own. But then you also find, I can kill others in order to put me at the top. So there's a disconnect. Now, how do we look so different from the animals, but there's also some commonality? And that's what they're trying to get to is, well, even animals have evolved into having similar things that we feel, but not to the same extent, right? It's not the same. Uh, this quote says, morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction. And any deeper meaning is illusory. It's just not real. We've evolved because we want to survive and we want to reproduce. That's why we're kind to one another. That's why we want to help one another is because it helps our species the most. This is what's out there. And here's some problems with saying that it evolved. Altruism, self-sacrifice, where does that come from? Is that just a chemical imbalance, the way that they see it? Why would I give my life for someone else? What... 
What kind of benefit do I have if I did that? Why does society establish that? If we just evolved, and that's just what we've gotten to, why? Forgiveness, compassion, and love. The only thing that makes sense in the midst of all of this is God. And I hope you see that, and I didn't want to get too technical just to lose us in this discussion, but I wanted to do it so that we can understand why people think the way that they do. And I hope this gives a little bit of clarity to that, just so we can put people in a box and think, all right, where are you coming from when you feel that you know, it's more valuable for this life over that life? Or I want to do what is, whatever is best for me, and that's all I'm concerned about. Now I've got you. I can understand when Paul comes into Lystra, why he goes this route. When he comes to Athens, he goes this route. And when he drops into the dead midst of Jerusalem in front of the king, he goes this route. Because we have worldviews, we have ethical systems, we have ways of thinking. And I hope this just very narrowly, um, because there's a, a lot of other places we can go with this. I hope that it does give some clarity of thought, at least to organize our thoughts a little bit more. So I want to finish that from our discussion last week so that now we can get into... How do we put all this into practice? How do we really deal with dilemmas, and what do they look like? Um, I gave you a few scenarios to start this class off with that we didn't like. Okay, they're they're things that just they won't happen in ever. You know, the trolley car situation, things like that. You think, well, that's never going to happen, but we are faced with all kinds of decisions. Let me just uh, put some things for us. I just compiled this big list. Uh, don't think I'll get to all of them, but um, let's see. You're a salesperson. Are you ethically obligated to disclose a core weakness of your product to a potential customer? All right, so you're in the, the workforce, and you know that your product has a little something that's off. It has a weakness. Are you going to promote it? Or you think, well, what's the big deal? Like, I'm not lying about it. But are you going to promote it knowing that it may break over this certain amount of time? When we deal with ethic, it, ethics, it's more than just moral content about what is right and wrong. It might have to do what, what helps us be the most virtuous. Um, I, I thought this was funny, but it just because there's a certain road that I think of. It says, every day your commute back home requires you to exit from a two-lane road onto a freeway. To do so, you must be in the right lane. But that right lane backs up for two miles adding 20 minutes to your daily commute. You're tempted to stay in the left lane, which moves much more closer and quicker um, right before the freeway on the ramp, uh, the freeway on ramp. Do you decide to cut ahead of the cars that, are waiting, that have been waiting 20 minutes ahead of you? It cracks me up. Um, I, I think about certain times where people will cut over on the, the curb just to go um, on the freeway. They'll go over on the shoulder just to get ahead of everybody. Okay, that's not right or wrong, right? You're not dealing with, um, you know, morals here, but we're dealing with ethics. Is it ethically okay for you to jump as far ahead so that you can kind of front people? Have we done it and justified it, right? Have we done things like that? All right, I think about Perry Hill Road. Um, let's see. Here's another one. It says, do you stuff the prepaid mailer with junk mail to send back to companies who sent you advertisements? Should oh look that's an ought right there. <laughs> um, is that ethically okay? They send you this mailer and you're gonna fill it up with all the extra mail and sales paper to send back to them because it's prepaid. 
I saw that uh, there was a post, um, a little picture that popped up on Facebook for that one. Um, this one happened to me yesterday. You find $2 in a bathroom stall. What do you do? So I, I, I was taking Kinley to the restroom, and I walked in, and there, were, uh, there was a, just two little dollars rolled up sitting on top of the, um, uh, the toilet paper stand. And I was about to walk in. There was a guy that had just uh, stepped out, um, and he was washing his hands. I said, hey, did you just come out of here? Awkward question, right? Uh, he's like, did you just come out of here? And I said, somebody left some money. I just wanted to know it. He said, no, that wasn't me. And I said, okay, well, I'll just take it up front. He said, well, how much is it? And I said, $2. And he said, well, just take it. What would be wrong? I can pick up a quarter off the ground, right? What if I found eight quarters on the ground? What's different? What does that have to say about virtue? Um, these are just funny. Do you lie to get the senior discount um, for breakfast or coffee? I thought that was funny. Um, see, because you're dealing with a lie at that point, but what if you just didn't say anything when they gave it to you? Is that okay? Um, your coworkers routinely uh, pad their expense accounts. Do you blow the whistle? Your coworkers ask you to cover for him so that he can sneak out to work early, sneak out of work early to go to his son's softball game. Do you agree? If he went anyway, would you keep silent? Um, you overhear your boss telling a colleague that one of your friends is going to get laid off in about two weeks. Are you a good employee and you keep that silent or do you tell your friend that it's going to happen? Have you ever lied to your mother, your boss, or the IRS? Do you claim that extra funds that you've been getting have you ever lied so that you wouldn't hurt someone's feelings? Have you ever lied to get out of a business or social engagement? Have you taken a questionable deduction on your income tax? Have you fudged uh, figures on a report to make the results look better? Have you taken a sick day when you weren't sick? Have you lied to a customer? Oh yeah, we sent that order yesterday or a creditor. Oh yeah, the check's in the mail when you didn't. Have you cut corners on quality control? <laughs> hey, I'm just asking. These are just uh, things that should get our attention, right? Um, have you... Do what? Say that again, sorry. <laughs> Might give you some ideas of what to do. Um, have you ever used these phrases? Well, everybody does it. Well, it's the lesser of two evils. It's only a little white lie. Look, it doesn't hurt anyone. Who will know? Have you ever put inappropriate pressure on others in order for them to, to do something? I, these were just things I found from the internet, and there's tons of them. You just type in ethical dilemmas in your workplace. So if you're a, an accountant, um, if you're a mechanic. I mean, you start plugging in there. These are things that you look at some of those and you're like, yep, <laughs> I've done some of those, right? Uh, some of them are big. You're like, well, okay, I shouldn't lie. I can answer, okay, I shouldn't have done that. But what about some of them that... Just question your virtues. See, do we think about that when it comes to Scripture, when we think about being a, a good person, a moral person, an ethical person? Do we think about, all right, I want to be loyal, Well, what if I compromise my loyalty? My loyalty to someone. Um, if God tells me I need to be a loving person, and I do something that is unloving, but it wasn't actually wrong, it just compromised my virtues, have I sinned? Am I actually, if I believe that God is good and goodness extends from Him and He has given us the definition of what is good, 
and I don't look like that, do I really believe and act upon my understanding of God? See, all of this, what we've been going from the very beginning to where we are right now in this discussion, we're not just looking at the world and thinking they're sinners and we're saved and we've got it all figured out. Right? We do know what the Scriptures say, but over and over again we fail. We do unethical things. We do immoral things. Why and how can we be better? Um, so I, I wanted to, to go through those. So um, did anything come to your mind? Um, or any other situations that you think of when you think about an ethical dilemma? Um, what do you think? What, just going through that list, what are some observations that you've got? Uh, what are some things that come to your mind as you think about how we operate in the world? People are good at justifying themselves. Okay? Okay, so there's different levels of how people feel about certain things and that we may look at somebody and think, well, that was bad for them to do, but then if we do it, we may not feel bad about it. <laughs> uh, we put it on different levels, things like that. I heard something else. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you take the example of Rahab. Uh, last week we looked at Abraham, and if you, you know, looking at some of the lies and the things that he did and David and stuff like that, but if you look at Abraham, he gets coupled with Rahab in James chapter 2. James chapter 2 has a deal with faith and works. And they are used as an example to understand faith and works. Now we look at Rahab and we realize, okay, she lied, but she's commended because of what she did for the spies. But why did she do what she did for the spies? It was because her heart melted within her when she knew what the God of Israel would do. Now, for her, being a prostitute and being, you know, in Jericho and um, being, you know, a true pagan, she came to an understanding about God. And we find her where? Matthew chapter 1, connected to Jesus. God has a way of teaching us. If you haven't had a, a good study of the genealogy of Jesus recently, look at how Matthew chapter 1 tells the genealogy of Jesus and look at who's included in there. David, you know, it mentions Bathsheba, but she's described as Uriah's wife. Now you just little, little things like that, and you got Rahab, and they pop up in there to let us know. It's a little bit of a reminder of where we've come from. But we look at the situation of Rahab and we think, Look at what she did, and why did she do it? Now, you've got an upper level, which is God. 
and then working through some things later on, and we find her being a proselyte and coming over and then eventually being in the genealogy of Jesus. So you think about things like that. When we go through these situations, um, th- I mean, we could just fill this whole class with just looking at dilemmas. Um, but I hope it gets a, it gets our attention. Yeah. So yeah, the principles, you know, it's the little ones together that we, we kind of dismiss at a time. You put all those together, and that's actually what's going to determine the bigger ones that we get to. You know, I've told you, the second half of this class, we're going to be dealing with big issues. But I'm just as concerned about the small ones as I am the big ones, because my virtues in the midst of the small ones are going to determine what I'm going to do in the big ones, and cannot be consistent. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, you look at Jesus before Pilate. He opened not his mouth. Uh, Before Caiaphas. You know, in those trials, he didn't say anything. He could have, and he could have self-incriminated. Small plug. Father-in-law wrote a book on legal apologetics. His bread and butter is the trials of Jesus and how those were the most unethical trials you could have ever gone through. They broke all of the Jewish laws at that time. One of them was if Jesus would have spoken that moment, he would have self-incriminated. He had no representation. And so he knew that, and he undermined what they were doing in the midst of it, but he also fulfilled scripture. I mean, it's just beautiful. Uh, but yeah, that's a good example of looking. It might be better not to say anything at all uh, than to try and say something and then compromise something later on. And your virtues in the midst of that will say that. So all of those together, um, and I would encourage you, go look up more of them. And man, our, our entertainment is filled with them. And I get called up. You'll be watching a TV show, and you might find yourself leaning towards the character that is doing the unethical thing, but it's been turned in such a way that that's the one that you want to watch and pay attention to and promote. Uh, Maybe they're in a relationship or they're pursuing a relationship. You're like, oh, that's just who they're destined to be with, although that's someone else's spouse. I mean, it pops up in TV shows all the time, things like that. We watch uh, ethical dilemmas fall out in front of us, and we get entertainment from them. I don't know. There's a lot. We could just spend a whole class just going through things like that and just talking about what we've learned from our entertainment and what you know is coming back to us. But uh, for the remainder of our class, I want to give us a system, uh, what I'm calling the ethical ladder. I want us to go up a ladder 
to be able to make the best decisions we possibly can in life. Okay? Now we're going up. Um, the first step that I want us to take is to think about, as you're trying to decide what to do in a situation, and this one should be obvious, this is why it's called the moral minimum. Is it legal? Okay, so if you're going you're gonna to decide if something's right or wrong. Now, I understand Romans 13, the dialogue there, our government may have certain things in place that you know, are legal, that are actually immoral. I get all that. But it's a good place to start. If you're going to make a decision, is it legal? If it's illegal, I probably shouldn't have anything to do with that. I realize in Romans 13 that governing authorities are put into place and they have their authority that you know eventually comes from God. I get that. Our government may have certain laws. They may legalize certain things, but that does not mean I have to do them. Okay? Um, I, I just... It, something that gets my attention is you look at the legalization of marijuana. Okay, you look at certain states that have legalized that have legalized that. How are we going to deal with it if Alabama all of a sudden legalizes it? What is our best argument for it? What if it's medicinal? I mean, you start putting all that in there just because our government legalizes something doesn't mean I have to do anything with it. But as we're trying to make this decision, we're going up a ladder. We just have to ask, is it legal? That's a good place to start, okay? And, and we'll get further in um, about that. Here's the next step we got to go up, though. And this is where we spend our time today, is thinking about virtue. Um, two questions for us to consider. Who am I? Now, I know this is, you know, philosophy will call this an existential question. of you know, Who am I really? You should know that about yourself. You should be able to ask that question about yourself and what you're doing and say, you know, who am I? What kind of virtues do I have? What is valuable to me? And are you being consistent with them? So who am I? But that also is going to lead to this, of making the statement, things I will never do. If you'll just stop here for a minute before we get further into this class and you think, things I will never do. I will never lie. Insert ethical dilemma previously mentioned. <laughs> have we compromised what we said we would never do? Mm. Chuck was talking uh, Wednesday night. He said, you know, I've gotten this far and I haven't killed anybody. He said, I don't plan on it. I can stick with that, right? So you may say, I will never kill someone. Would you in war? Would you to protect? Okay, so you can't make that statement, I will never kill someone, but you would then put a qualifier on that, right? So this is just, we're just trying to put things in a box. We're trying to decide what, what are you willing to say I will never do? Who am I and what am I not willing to do? So these are virtue things. These are just things about who you are. What would Jesus do? Stuff like that, okay? All right, but this is going to go a little bit further, um, and this is where we've come from. You have to think about morality as it deals with others, okay? Um, we looked at, you know, what's best for the group. Some people are going to make politics. They're going to make rules and, and, you know, enforce certain things, you know, on a grand scale or an individual scale of what's best, you know, can we count up the cost? What's the cost-benefit analysis? What's the best thing that we can do for the most group of people? Okay, it's stuff like that. So um, what must I do? If we go back to those ought statements, if we do believe that there are certain oughts, if you're trying to decide what, what should I do in this moment, go back to some of those dilemmas. 
Ask the question before you get there, what should I actually do? And why do you feel that way about it? Well, because of who I am and what I'm not willing to do. Right? They're, they're piecing together. We're going up the ladder. We're trying to get somewhere. Uh, and this is a good one. What if everyone did this? That's always a good, you know, a good gauge, right? <laughs> what if everyone did what I'm doing? Would I want them to do the same thing back to me? What if I was the boss? What if I was the recipient? What if I was the person in charge? What if everyone did exactly what I'm doing right now? But where this all goes to, and this is why we're going to Jesus next week, is what's, what's the best spiritual thing? What's at the top of the ladder? What are we building up toward? What has God said about it? This is divine command. Uh, this is He's actually said something. He's given us the word. And then what do we all know about it? There's a code. We respond to goodness. Why do we as humans respond to goodness? Why have we created certain cultures and things around us? God's made us in a certain way. We have to respond to God's word, but we have to respond to our inward call as well of putting these things together. Deep calls out to deep. This is how you make a right decision. This is a good way to make a right decision. Next week, we're going to Jesus. He's going to challenge our virtues. He's going to challenge our character. He's going to challenge our ethics. He's going to challenge our morals so that when we get to the big issues, we should have a good foundation to stand on. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for being here this morning.